Well, hello. My name is Joe Albert, and welcome to a cup of Joe. And actually, today is Valentine's Day that we're recording this on. So, happy Valentine's Day to everyone. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Dr. Beck Burson, and we're going to be exploring the topic of a bunch of topics related to inclusivity and engagement in the workplace. And our focus will be on the leader's role in fostering a climate where people can feel connected, feel seen, and feel as though they belong. Beck, hello, how are you? I'm great, uh, happy to be here. Um, I'm Beck Burson, and uh, you guys probably know me by what's becoming a tagline, and that is that I love trying to understand neurons and narratives and how individuals and systems change. So I'm happy to try and bring any of those thoughts to today. And I think it'll be uh, a little bit different in that we're going to be exploring a topic that I don't know if there's a clear, unified answer. And I'm hoping that we can show up in authentic dialogue to try and parse that out. Great. Well, here we go. And we will probably avoid too many, like, here's three things to do when kind of a, this is going to be a true dialogue. And we're excited to have this guest. Um, ben Bost is here with us. I'm going to introduce him just a second. Um, and I say just in general, whether you're a team leader in a large for-profit organization, uh, an executive director of a small or not-for-profit, work in the school system, healthcare, whatever it might be, your ability to be inclusive and sustain an inclusive culture is a critical component, I think, of your success as a leader. Inclusive leadership has emerged in the last few years as a, as a capacity that I would say is critical for leading organizations in a very complex world, uh, shifting customer preferences, pandemics, and so forth, and so on. This turbulent environment creates different styles of leadership that we need. So today's segment will offer an illustration, I think, of dialogue, certainly some research that and practices that I think you can use. And our guest today is Ben, Ben Bost. Ben is the founder of Firelamp Consulting and Primary Trainer. He has a diverse background comprised of professional athletics, for-profit and non-profit senior leadership, operations, media, digital technology, contact, content creation. But at the core, Helping people live healthy lives is his passion. He brings a deep, creative, aesthetic, and philosophical approach to every engagement that assists organizations with how to adapt to our rapidly changing culture. In his practice of a, as a personal development advisor and consultant, Ben mentors world-class athletes, business and nonprofit leaders, and others. And he attended UCLA, Baylor University, and holds a BA in history and an MA in leadership. Ben lives near Boise, Idaho with his wife, Carrie, and their three children, Joshua, Eli, and Audrey. Ben, thanks for joining us today. It is great to be here with you. Thanks for considering me for this uh, for this discussion. We're excited. And as we've gotten to know Ben, um, trust me, listeners, you're in for a treat. Uh, ben, you have a pretty unique story when it comes to the work you're doing. And, and when Beck and I first met you, uh, I think we were both struck with, with your diverse background, but especially how your participation in athletics and, and other activities over the years have prepared you to do this work that you're very passionate about. And you can feel the passion when you talk. Mm -hmm. um, could you share some of your story? 
Yeah. So like a lot of people, their story begins sort of where they showed up and where they show up on the earth. And mine was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So I was born there and grew up there. And I, I was in a family where both sides of the family uh, were working in in the mills, engineers on the railroad, working in steel mills. You know, that part of the country mm-hmm. is known for very, very much in its history for creating a lot of the infrastructure and and innovation around the forming of the United States of America. So I grew up in a very blue collar setting, work setting, um, just hardworking people uh, in that way. And then at the age of 10, I moved to Southern California, Orange County, and it was just a culture shock. And you couldn't get like two very, I mean, two, two areas that were so different than one another. Uh, and, and so I, I didn't realize until I was doing a lot of my training and, and moving through my professional life, how much that, that dichotomy of those two places would inform who I am as an individual. Uh, when you get into a place like Southern California, the the diversity of ideas and the opportunities that you get exposed to and and the way in which how a, an area like that really pushes for innovation and even thought innovation. And so I have that in my background and that at a very young age, like you mentioned, world-class athletics and, and athletics is a huge part of my story. I played competitive golf at every level and including professionally and then worked in world-class athletics mentoring uh, athletes for over a decade in their environments major league baseball pga tour and others and when i look at my story uh, in in reference to the conversation we're having today i I grew up in an era where there was a transition and transition happening in the particularly the sport that i played which was golf Uh, i grew up competing against uh, one of the greatest players in history and a prodigy named Tiger Woods. The story that I tell that's really funny for me was my senior year of high school when I went to the qualifying tournament for state. And I, the score that I shot qualified me for one shot into the state tournament. And I lost by 10 shots to Tiger Woods. And and so no one, no one tells you at that point in your life that you're competing against a prodigy or that you're, uh, watching something historic happen, but Tiger's emergence in golf and in sport in general shifted so many things. And I didn't know that I was watching that at, at the time. So when we look at a topic like inclusivity or diversity, golf in history would not be a sport that would be labeled as very diverse <laughs> or very inclusive. And yet uh, the emergence of Tiger Woods has done so much, not just for the the sport of golf, but also for sports in general as a whole. And, and so I lived during that period of time and it and definitely influenced, especially even more so now, influences how I see the world and the importance of the topic that we're discussing today. And I think the the most important thing about a topic like this is for us to approach it with a deep, genuine sense of humility. And the fact that none of us are experts at everything that we're all trying to learn and that good, healthy, authentic dialogue is is really driven by wanting to learn and wanting to understand what is valuable and what is most important. And that's the posture that I take approaching this discussion. And uh, and I'm grateful for the story that I have uh, and, and how it's informed the way I think about these topics, but also the way that I help people to consider them in their leadership. 
Excellent. Wow, Tiger, well, that's pretty funny. Uh, what well, wasn't funny, I guess, that it's, uh, how would you know? I mean, that's an amazing thing, really. Yeah, you don't. <laughs> yeah, you don't. Um, I, so I'm, I'm catching on to that final piece you just shared about how you work with people and that that's that posture of humility. But what is your approach as you work with leaders? And, and you know the, the kind of world they're entering and the kind of skills they need to build cultures where employees can be more engaged and, and rally around a mission and so forth. How would you describe your approach to working with leaders? I would say that if I have to use one word that I'm targeted toward with leaders predominantly is uh, values and, and how they, they structure and bring the values that they appreciate and the ones that are, they feel are needed and necessary in the workplace, how, how those are structured and the, and the means by which we get there is almost always driven by philosophical thinking. How are they thinking about life? Are they considering the bigger story? Are they considering the way people are showing up into their environments? And, and so we are told so much today in our culture what to think. We are bombarded with information constantly and having to wade through sound bites and blog posts and TikToks and media and, and digital technology that is just chasing for our, our attention that sometimes we have to be able to stop and back up and go, what do I really think about this particular issue? And so I very much lead from that place in my work and mentoring and advising of business leaders and individuals and companies to approach and and really back up to the place of philosophy. How are we thinking about life? How are we thinking about this particular issue? And is it informing our values? I like that. That's really helpful. Hey, the other thing I, I want to mention, this is building on, on Ben's story. As you listen to this conversation today, I, I'd invite you to reflect on your own experiences of being excluded, included, and, and what that triggers for you as you think about it. And uh, I certainly have a bunch of experiences like that in my own history. And, and there is a painfulness about it sometimes and, and a sense of, I've just, you know, I'm not good enough. I'm not enough, you know, that kind of a thing. And I'd, I'd invite listeners just to kind of hold on to some of those stories because they're probably worth sharing to Beck, what are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking a lot. Um, I was actually thinking about, you know, our sister podcast um, with Living Leadership and when they were talking about authenticity and they were talking above the line and below the line leadership and how, you know, when we're above the line, we can be curious, we can be open. We feel like there's abundance and when we're below the line, there's a scarcity, um, that there's only enough and we get defensive and are committed to being right. And I'm thinking about how we get reactive sometimes when we think about inclusivity, as if I include more than I have less. Um, and some of the deep psychodynamic things that go on. I mean, my background as a physician and psychiatrist, I'm thinking on the individual level and narrative therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy are two things uh, that I spent a lot of time with. Narrative therapy is just understanding what's the story I tell about my, myself and others. And acceptance and commitment therapy is looking at 
our values and our mindset, meaning mindfulness and how we integrate those values. And the thing that's really striking to me, and I'd, I'd love to see kind of how this relates to the bigger picture is the awareness, right? Like I like to say, we can choose our values or our values choose us. And this difference between reactivity and responsiveness. And if we're reacting to topics like DEI, topics like inclusivity, it's probably out of a place of fear, probably out of a place of not wanting to lose something. Whereas if we can respond to this and commit to whatever values inform that, how might that look different? And I, I think there's a lot of territory grabbing in this space of either they're not being enough or they're being too much, but um, trying to just calm down whatever, like when Joe asks you know, the listener to think what, what's coming up for you to just kind of calm down whatever space we're in, either in real time as a leader when we're trying to address these difficult issues or just listening to this podcast, trying to get in this, this space of um, response versus reaction. Curious what <laughs> responses <laughs> or reactions you guys have to that. I, I really appreciate what you brought up about awareness. You know, I think when we're, you know, DEI is very much a conversation a, about transformation as well and growth. And really in my practice, when I'm, when I'm working with people on, on transformation, there's stages. And the first is awareness always. Are we aware of the issue? How well informed are we are, what are we considering in our in ourselves as well as what might be going for, on for others at a, at a base level of awareness? I think that is critical at the start. And then from that place, we we move out into collecting information. If we're being wise and thoughtful, we take a posture, like we said, of humility and go, there's probably a lot I need to learn about this <laughs> before I can begin to do what the third phase is, which is integration, how I begin to integrate different values, patterns, uh, opportunities, uh, into the environments that I shape. Basically, all leaders are shaping culture. They're shaping the culture of the places, their workplaces, their environments, uh, the 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 spaces that that folks come into. And so, what we choose to integrate, we, we need to be thoughtful and humble about what we know, and the time that we've spent with it. And when we do that well, transformation happens as a byproduct. It, it really happens that way. And. Uh, so awareness is a, a piece that we just can't run past. We have to spend a little bit of time with and consider our own story, how it's informing us, what's going on in our world. And and that's why I, I believe, and I said this to you all when we were preparing for this, that that the the story that DEI is telling us, we can't divorce it from the history, from from the that it is it is not just telling us a story of right now in 2023. It's telling us a historical story. And if we really want to treat it with the greatest level of fidelity and importance that we need to consider that we need to know and not not try to separate it from the story really of humanity that has led us to this point. And I think that's an important thing to consider in, in the discussion as a whole. Yeah, I like that. And I, I would just add with about, and then you just reference this, but about knowing your your story. 
knowing you know those events that have shaped you that bring you to this place and time where you are and like i said reflecting on some of those experiences you've had of being included excluded and so forth those things really shape us and i i really think in terms of stories um that's we have a narrative identity and, and back references as well and you know we view ourselves narratively in the world and that's from attachment all the way to to currently and so i think that's a place to start because people go well do i just go out and reflect i'm like no what's your story i want to hear it you know that tells me who you are today and it doesn't mean it's who you're going to be necessarily but i think you have to have some clarity about that you know what brings you to this moment in time and um and that's some some stuff is really will continue to serve you and then other stuff it's time maybe to let go of it you know we we build ways of coping and dealing with stuff in our lives and those stories you know shape us of course and bring us to who we are but somebody said once you know you don't tear a wall down to you know why it was built and it's like some of these you know patterns we have in our lives of thinking or interacting some have served us really well and will continue to do so others it's like well okay maybe i'm and that adaptability i think is is really an important component of of what leaders need to be i mean you described it so well ben and especially around humility i think and awareness and the adaptability to a very turbulent environment i think is going to be essential so um that's a great point to make yeah thanks well and the, and the truth that our stories don't exist in a vacuum right there there's our story inside of inside of the current story that's being told culturally and then inside of a larger story of all of humanity and i think that that is really important to be aware of because we can very quickly get focused today there's a lot of push toward individualism and i think this is one of the themes that needs to be discussed when we're looking at treating this topic with with good with great care is we're existing inside of a society that really drives and pushes for individualism and yet at the same time is also pushing for the common good and and the consideration of all people and the consideration of of uh, the inclusivity of all people and and yet there's this also other running theme of individualism at the same time of of the self and making sure that i'm cared for and that i have what i need that i'm safe and that i can be my authentic self and naturally when you just look at those two those two elements side by side we're going to find collisions and difficulty there and and that is i think where the beauty of the discussion exists is in the complexity of how to navigate that yeah. and and to have that conversation as a leader with people that really resonates and it's making me think about you know, individually we have values and we can either choose them or they choose us but culturally there's sort of this crowdsourcing of values and it's very reactive it's not this thoughtful philosophical reflection but you know it's usually market driven and very competitively driven and these values sort of rise to the top. And um, I liked your observation about you know, leaders shaping culture. And right now there's so much evidence in the research. I'm just referencing a few things. But as far as DEI, 85% of CEOs of inclusive companies see increased profits Inclusive companies are 120 times more likely to hit their financial goals. I mean, there's a lot of research and data that supports D 
DEI and even just like the biological model of diversity, it's, it's good for a species. Um, so if we know this and we're shaping culture, there's the reactive values of a culture that also is in competition. And this idea of the dominant narrative or a dominant narrative of scarcity, there's only so much to go around. This might be, well, I'm just very interested in how you might respond to this, but I'm just doing the math and thinking about when you would have been competing against Tiger Woods. And I think affirmative action was probably a hot topic around then. And it could have been a narrative that you could have glommed onto that there was some shaping of the dynamics because of DEI or affirmative action. When I think we all know Tiger Woods is just a very gifted golfer. Um, <laughs> True. And that wasn't the case, but I could see that could have, that could have been a narrative and that could have shifted how you saw yourself, how you saw others, how you saw the world. Um, and I, I think we're all grappling with trying to make sense of these narratives. How, how did you come to the narrative you had about yourself in the midst of a culture that was trying to reckon with these issues at that time? Boy, what a, what a great question. Um, there's a lot that I could say about that. I think the first thing that I would say is in reference to affirmative action because of an experience I had when I was at UCLA. And there were multiple things that were happening. One is I was sitting with a history professor uh, doing office hours, just going and ask some questions. And the building that we were in uh, was there was a protest that entered the building and started walking the floors. And it was an affirmative action protest. Wow. So just it, that is not environments that were typical for me to be in. And to to see that happening and have that as a part of my experience certainly causes me to think and shape me. There were transitions in sports where where programs were being cut because of a, a Title IX to make more space for female athletes and scholarships. And there was a lot of changes during that time that were taking place. I just remember my professor, my history professor, he could see the look on my face. I was like, I didn't know what to do in the midst of everything that was happening. And he just got up and went and closed the door, came back and sat down. And <laughs> it was kind of like, this is what happens in these kinds yeah. of environments. This is where ideas are being worked out. And, and, yeah. and among uh, students who are trying to think about life and, wow. and figure it out. As, in reference to my own story, as an athlete, um, I there's much that I did not understand that was happening to me along the way that I now reflectively look back and have a lot more sense for. You referenced multiple times competition. A lot of my story is informed by, in my 20s as a professional athlete, confronting uh, significant struggle with mental health issues of anxiety, depression, eventually suicidal ideation. And the fact that today we have one of the biggest crises we have in our culture is mental health. It's a, it's a significant discussion. Many people are talking about it. And, and I, what I eventually realized, I thought that a majority of my struggle in my story with those uh, those 
challenges that I just referenced were related to family of origin and how I was shaped and personality. What I came to realize later as a, as a highly competitive athlete, that there was significant amount, I would say 80% of what I dealt with that was being driven by constant ebbing and flowing of stress and anxiety related to competitiveness. And this is an underlying theme of the of the narrative of the story of humanity and what we're facing in the workplace, what we face across the scope of culture is there is an underlying theme of com- competitiveness and competitive individualism. And as much as we might want to create nice ideas that make people feel good about life, like when you get out in the real world, we all know it's it can be very ruthless and very hard. And sometimes reality doesn't have a whole lot of mercy <laughs> attached to it. And and that doesn't necessarily show up in ways that is going to alert us, right? <laughs> Say, oh, by the way, this is going to be very hard for you. It just is. And and I think that particularly the next generation in the workplace is trying to figure out how do we navigate this challenging work environment of stress and pressure? Because that is really what we're seeing in the workplace is people are showing up more stressed, not knowing how to deal with these environments and and even the topic of burnout is a significant conversation that if, if our values our past values in previous generations tell us, we'll just work harder and, and that will motivate people and they're hard to motivate. Are we aware enough to be seeing the, the signs on the horizon to know that maybe the reason they're, we can't motivate them is because they're overwhelmed. Are we even asking that question? And there's a lot more that I can say there, but in my own story, I came to realize that, that this is a real issue. And as I continue to travel and speak about it and raise this conversation for school districts or corporations, um, that's what I'm being sourced to do. I'm being sourced to come in and train on stress mitigation and management. How do we, and, and really, if we reduce it down to what it, the, the ultimate place where it's functioning is is how do we help people be in the best space they can to function and, and work? When stress and anxiety is too high, they don't, they're not at their best. And so are we thoughtful enough to consider that on their behalf and to be able to work to that end um, to serve them in the best way so that they, because they're coming into our environments that way. <laughs> they're coming in already with high levels of this. And are we as leaders considering the best way we can serve them to help them mitigate and manage so that the workplace is enjoyable for them and could be contributing to this sense of their well-being because by and large the next generation they're looking at the workplace to not only be a place where they can make a living but also contribute to their well-being that it's a source of goodness in their life so there's a lot of layers there <laughs> no that makes a lot of sense i'm i'm intrigued with uh, what leaders can do to help someone when you know they're hired or whatever uh to succeed and thrive in whatever role they're in. And I, I think sometimes leaders don't always set up the, the process for success. I, one of the areas I studied a lot was my dissertation was on internal or intrinsic motivation, you know? And um, I remember in 1973, I was, I got hired at a factory in, in New Jersey 
And the, the first thing the guy asked me, he said, can you drive a forklift? I said, oh, well, I've never done it, but how hard could it be, you know? And so I drove it and for a little bit, never driven a stick shift and drove it in circles in the parking lot. And the guy foreman said, bring it in. So I brought it in. I never figured out where the brakes were, you know? And so I drove it down this long hallway in the factory and drove it right into a wall, you know? <laughs> And uh, tore all the insulation off the wall. It was awful. And I remember the foreman grabbing me and throwing me on the ground, you know. <laughs> he goes, you almost destroyed the forklift. I said, well, you didn't tell me how to drive it. <laughs> he said, you said you knew, you know. I said, well, I'm not going to say I don't know on my first day, you know. <laughs> and so when I got to my dissertation, I, I chose to do it on intrinsic motivation. What are those factors that cause someone to be engaged in a job? Because you do have this stress and anxiety that you bring with you from society, but also can I do this job, you know? And, and so a friend of mine, he was on my my dissertation, Ken Thomas, Dr. Ken Thomas, he came up with this, this model of, you know, four factors that lead to somebody being engaged. First, a sense of choice, you know, being able to use your own discretion and as you approach doing a task, but competence, can I do this well? And that's exactly what was lacking for me with the forklift. Finally, purpose or meaningfulness, like what function does this job serve to the larger sort of effort here in the organization? And then finally progress, and I'm getting better at this, you know? I think if somebody has high degrees of those four things as they do their work, the feeling of being anxious and overwhelmed, I think diminishes a bit anyway. But that's that's partly the leader's job is helping people with those four areas. You know, what can I do to foster success so somebody does thrive? And I remember at the end of the summer, my former came over to me. He goes, you know, Joe, when we hired you that first day, I thought you were the dumbest blank blank I'd ever met, you know? And, and I'm like, well, thanks. I appreciate that. He goes, actually, you're not as stupid as you look, you know? I'm like, well, I appreciate that too, you know? But <clears throat> it was partly because of the way it was set up for me, not, not necessarily to succeed, at least at first. So I think that's just something else for leaders to be aware of is, are we setting, when people are assigned a task, are they set up for success? And I don't know, that, that just came to me as you were talking about this. Well, I was reading an article earlier that really ties into this. And Jim Harder is the uh, chief workplace scientist for Gallup. And in this particular article referencing, you know, what can we doing be doing as employers or managers around these issues? And, and he, he focuses on being able to facilitate meaningful conversation in people's lives, which I think mm -hmm. is a fascinating subject to explore. And this quote says that the most important thing employers can do is to equip managers to have the right kind of conversations with people. Yeah. Harder says, he, he says companies should be doing more to upskill their managers to facilitate meaningful and ongoing conversations. At least once a week, he says, managers should take the time to get to know their employees' personal lives in addition to what they have going on at work and how the two intersect. Mm -hmm. That it, this is not just a factory. Right. This is not just a place of of production, but that there's meaning walking in the door because humans are meaningful. Mm -hmm. And at the base of all of it, underneath all the crises that we see surfacing culturally, there's a crisis of meaning and a crisis of loneliness. Uh, the Cambridge sociologist Johan Hari wrote a book called Lost Connections. And in that book, he says loneliness sets in when a person has nothing meaningful to share with another person. I'm paraphrasing the quote. Yeah. 
but that's what happens is is meaning starts to be extracted from people's lives that it almost like if there's a a a well of meaning and that well starts to run dry then it makes it very difficult to to work in environments and to thrive and so leaders if they understand we can be purveyors of meaning through the kinds of conversations that we're facilitating is is something to contemplate and, and yep. certainly this is where all the research is is headed this is yep. so much of it is is uh pivoting around this central conversation no i like that and it really ties into the storytelling stuff and you know getting to know someone's story is you can't ignore them after you hear it you can't marginalize them as easily because now you know who they are at least a piece of who they are and i'll bet that foreman at that factory back in jersey he didn't know me he was he just knew me as this stupid kid that drove into the wall you know but knew nothing about my story or my interest or anything else and i think that's such a missed opportunity um i was reading recently this uh uh, it was out of Harvard Business Review. They said, with our corporate clients, it's the exchange of human experience via stories, focus groups, listening sessions that tend to inspire lasting change for people on a personal level. We can make actual progress on inclusion by implementing a story-based approach where employees are encouraged to tell their stories, own them, and consider how they impact their day-to-day -day experience at work. And I think that that is... It's not that hard to coach people on it. And but for some managers, it feels like a waste of time. But in fact, it's the very thing that's going to cause greater engagement and commitment, I think, getting to know people feel seen then. And you're absolutely right, Ben, about loneliness. It is it is an epidemic. I mean, it is sad, but when I in my class, I'll ask how many people have experienced, you know, loneliness, especially in 90% hangs go up, you know, and, and it's that severe, I think. So thanks for bringing that up. Well, it's at the crux of so much of what I work with every day. You know, people are coming to me because of loneliness, because of stress, because of not having meaning and purpose, you know, in the context of mental illness and um, the power of story to be so healing, like, Joe was saying is absolutely relevant and we're we're approaching the white hot center of I think what we were all hoping would come up today which is can the workplace can an organization can a corporate entity be able to facilitate or empower existential means of meaning making purpose connection, authenticity in a context where individuals are being driven by different narratives, by different values, and, you know, how to navigate that as a leader. And I just had this thought, hang with me for a second, maybe this is a little too abstract, but we know individually, we are able to look at the brain and just to oversimplify, there's brain 1.0, the amygdala, and it's fight or flight, it's binary, it's quick, and it tells you go, no go, safe, not safe, um, very discriminant. And then there's the frontal cortex and our frontal lobes where we're able to think, what do I want? How am I gonna get there? And what does that take? And we're able to hold two truths at once and we're able, 
to respond and not react. I almost think leaders or leadership is that evolutionary process where we're able to connect with what do we want and how are we going to get there? And culture is what is. And what is sometimes is still kind of reflective of brain 1.0, right? It's hyper-competitive, excessive individuation. Um, That's that hard reality, Ben, that you were talking about. But leadership, we have this ability to evolve. And I think that's at the crux of this whole DEI inclusive leadership conversation is, yes, there is this reality of reactive hyper-competitiveness that we are in the context of. But as leaders, we have the ability to think, where do we want to go? How are we going to get there and respond? And, And storytelling, I think, is huge. This idea to see each other, the um, ability to create authentic dialogue, all of that is, I think, this higher order of functioning that as leaders we're we're called to do. Um, And either of you can pick this up, but I know Joe has some thoughts, you know, with Martin Buber and I and thou, um, dialogic space and being able to actually see another person. Um, But any stories that you guys have that speak to this or any experiences that speak to this, um, I'd I'd love to hear. Wow. There's, so when I, when I think about this, I think related to, you mentioned culture in there and what it is that we're actually doing, right? Every one of us is uh, shaping culture. And when I walk into an environment as a leader or leading leaders, what I bring with me is two things, the culture that I'm making, which is really directed to my thoughtfulness and reflection around the conversation we're having here, my values, what I believe, uh, what is most necessary, what serves people the best, um, or at a very high level. And then my character, like the ability to carry that in a way that translates to others. Um, so I have this this structure that I use, which is called multi-layered or multi-level consideration. Right? Consideration is an interesting word. To go to what you were referencing about the the hyper competitive culture and the the reality of how things function, every one of us is going to have to confront that in our lives. And the the difficulty and reality of it is too is no matter how much this conversation happens at a high level, there will be people that will never be convinced. Right. That's just the nature of it. Like no force, no legislation is going to convince them. Otherwise, they're going to continue to operate that way. But that that shouldn't get in the way of of the consideration that we're developing for for how this works. And so the concept of multilayered consideration starts with the self, because let's be honest, we are self-preserving individuals. We want what's best for ourselves. And so the question of what is best for me Sometimes I can draw conclusions there that actually undermines what's best for others. And that's that can create great complexity. So to, to be able to sit with that for a while and, to, and to, to have that conversation, the second would be, what is how am I considering culture and the environment that I'm walking into, right? That, that that environment doesn't exist to just serve only me, right? And then the last one is, how is this influencing the common good? 
the common good of everyone in the workplace, as well as outside of that in the community, how people perceive our company, how people perceive what we stand for. And, and is it translating? I have to get past that first layer of self and that, that first layer of just our company only to consider those other two pieces and to be able to bring a multi-layered consideration to the environments that I influence. Because ultimately that's what leaders are doing. They're influencing environments and making culture. And that is really important for us to have a way in which we approach thinking about it. Um, and an example, like you, you, you mentioned example, there's a company that I'm working with right now where a particular leader started to really understand how his own unhealth was ex- encountering and influencing the dynamics of every department and his inability to lead and manage his own unhealth was was influencing the company in, and taking it in a negative direction. So we had to start addressing that and and how he was showing up every day uh, to the workplace and the dynamics that it was causing. Yeah, that's a good example. Yeah, I like that. And I I, I building on the self because a lot of the self focus i i know emerged 60s 70s what in the me generation stuff and all that but about two years ago i was invited to submit a paper for a conference and um it was related to bruce springsteen who i'm a fan of and so um anyway but the 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 call for papers said you know we'd be particularly interested in any approaches to his music that involves inner subjectivity and i'd never heard that word before you know and so off i go submitting you know i i buy six seven books on intersubjectivity and hundreds of papers probably i read finally i submitted my proposal and they write back and said you know dr albert this sounds great we're really looking forward to your presentation in fact we're really interested in how you highlighted intersubjectivity and that'll be a key focus for us as we listen to your presentation i'm like oh crap like i just learned the word you know not a alone am I an expert at it and but what I learned too and this took me down the road with Martin Buber's stuff is about we're wired for connection we just are and that sense of loneliness is really a result of of sort of severing that connection or you know uh, muffling it in some way shape or form a friend of mine took his son to college last September and and uh so he's walking down the dorms and he said Joe every room there were kids inside playing computer games freshmen they were not out in the hallway talking to each other they're just sort of isolating themselves you know and he goes what What's happened, you know, and it's a sort of funny example, but the truth is kids are isolated in a lot of ways, you know, and you do have problems with suicide and alcohol abuse and all that. But I think that's a way to numbing some of that sense of disconnection that so many people feel. I, I think anyway, and and I think if work can provide a space where you can tell your story and it's heard and you're seen, you know, that type of thing, um, that would certainly be an antidote. And uh, but that's just it was like crossed my mind as Beck was talking too. so. No, I think that that fits. And I think um, shame and loneliness, I, I, I think shame and meaning. Are more related than we realize. I think when we live a life of meaning, that's an antidote to shame. And so we know shame and loneliness are wildly detrimental. Um, kind of framing 
inclusive leadership in a way, how can everybody show up in their authentic self so they don't feel shame? And how can they know they belong? And that distinction between culture, the hyper-competitiveness, excessive individuation that can happen versus a leader taking an organization and trying to be committed to pushing us to evolve. And there, there has to be, I, I think, some way to um, address shame, address connection through these open dialogues. But I mean, practically, if I am a leader and I have somebody who still is stuck in the culture of hyper-individuation, hyper-competitiveness, they're going, they're going to say, like, you're taking something away from me. How do I practically address that? That that's, that's in what is, that is in the culture, but in this context of what we're trying to push and progress, it doesn't look that way. I mean, just to make it more clear, back to the example, Ben, with you. It could have been seen losing to somebody took something away from you. Like in a hyper-competitive, there's winners and losers context. You didn't get something. But what you've told us through your stories, you actually asked the hard questions, the philosophical questions of, you know, what is the purpose in life? What are my fears? All these <laughs> essential questions. And you came to having values. Mm-hmm. And now you find a lot of meaning and purpose helping other people and helping them align yes. their values. Yes. I don't see that as losing. No. Right? Not and, one bit. And trying to get people to evolve into this culture where there's not winners and losers, but if we can all show up without shame, if we can all belong, and we can all align with our values, that there's a ton to be gained, that it is a different paradigm. Yeah, that's very true. And, and, and I think when people are able to start establishing a deep sense of meaning and purpose in the midst of, let's be, be honest, what is the, the fact that this can be a bit of a hyper competitive and a little bit ruthless kind of culture. What I didn't get ultimately that I discovered was taught how to have the the type of necessary character to meet the demands of reality that was being placed upon me. How do I navigate these environments? And I think that's where the central conversation can take place is coming alongside people to help us learn and develop and grow more and how to, to deal with and navigate what we're all facing versus just protecting the space for ourselves. And that's why at the center of all of it, as I considered values and I looked at what is going to equip me the most, and, and leaders are almost shocked a lot of times when I facilitate this conversation with them, what, what value will equip me the most to be able to, can take me the farthest, that will get the most traction as I work with people, I landed on love. Mm-hmm. And that particular conversation about love is that if you want to sit down and have a very challenging conversation in a group of people, talk about that. Mm-hmm. Because in, in many ways, it is the dialogue of our culture. What It shows up in, in different statements, but it's like, 
what does it mean to really love people and to to be a loving person? And and it's funny because I've done a lot of research on this, like been one of the primary areas of research. And so to bring it to a, a person who's leading an organization and say, as a leader, you need to consider this conversation in your life. And where would you begin? Because mm. <laughs> we have a very difficult time breaking ourselves outside of the common framework of like love is just emotional. It's this feeling that we that we have. And it's and it's funny. We're we're on Valentine's Day. That just hit me <laughs> that we're recording the, the one day of the year that celebrates love. And we mostly view it through this emotional frame. So I have a, a group of business leaders that I'm actually working with right now, and we're facilitating this discussion. I've been facilitating this discussion for them. And I said, you need to, we need to move you outside of just an emotional framework on this subject. And what would be the words or concepts that would be associated with us to allow us to access it from that place? Not that love doesn't have emotions, but it's because it does. But what are we actually considering? And I think at the top of that list is the best interest of other people and their well-being. Like I ask funny questions like, how do I actually know that I love somebody or the converse that I don't love them? <laughs> like what, what, what are the indicators that would tell me that in my life? And I, and I think a starting point is, do I care about their well-being and do I care about their best interest? And am I willing to facilitate and serve that? And as you both know, this is a, a hot topic. You put this question in front of any leaders or celebrities or whatever you like, what would make our world better? Well, if we just would love one another, it's like this common global appeal to a sentiment we all share. And yet is very challenging to define on that spectrum is the idea of what well, is love only accepting and allowing people to do whatever they wish. And and if we don't accept them, then we don't love them. I don't think that that works, right? Like there, that would be like me standing with a sign and knowing the bridge is out and just waving and telling someone they're doing great as they're driving to their death, right? Like that's not going to be helpful. So, so we trying to find the space where love really works functionally. Uh, and, 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 and obviously this podcast isn't about this specifically, but I think it is a critical topic when it comes to values is do I care about how people experience me and am I showing up as a loving person and facilitating that type of environment um, to take love to a place that most people wouldn't take it to. And the funny part about it is if you go to the dictionary, <laughs> it's an interesting study. You know, the number one defined as love is defined. Number one is a passionate, a person, passionate affection for a person or thing. And then you'll have even on that list, the score of zero in tennis, <laughs> <laughs> which highlights how challenging it can be when we approach such a valuable concept like love and the way it can inform our lives and the way we shape culture in the workplace. Because in the midst of all those definitions, there's a concept built around benevolence. And I think a benevolent leader, one who cares about the well-being and best interest of the people they serve, is going to think about the workplace different and going to think about the kind of conversations they facilitate, the kind of culture that they shape. And I would suggest that it's something that we could have incredible dialogue around in leadership circles to, to really start to hone the way, the way environments can be, can be built to function. Um, 
that doesn't cause anybody to feel like they're being left out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. Exactly yeah. right. No, I like that. And we need to sort of begin winding down here. And um, I was thinking about love. I, I, show, I just showed a clip in my class last week. I think it was <clears throat> Howard Behar was on our board at Gonzaga for a long time from Starbucks president. And uh, he got an award and the award was given to him um, that he in this gala event by Howard Schultz, the CEO. And Howard said, I'm going to use I'm going to use a word that. You know, I people rarely use in business, and that's love. And you know, and it was just this powerful moment. It was really cool to watch, actually. Schultz and Behar up there, and you know, they've had their differences over the years, but it was just, it was very, it was healing. It was, it was just positive as anything. And uh, more of that language, I think, it does make a difference. So, um, Ben, gosh, I got to thank you. Um, geez, uh, there's so much here that. Um, do you want to share a little, any final comments? And also if people wanted to follow up and get to your website, how would they do that? I think my, my final comment would come probably in the form of a brief story just quickly. Years ago, I was traveling from where I was living in Phoenix to Tulsa and I was mentoring high school athletes. I was being flown out there by families to do this. And I would just bring subjects of conversation. So this particular night I put had them put all their cell phones in a basket and I put in the center of the table, the word love. And I asked them, how is this defined? That was the topic of our conversation that night. Kids sitting across from me comes back with uh, knowing, wanting, and doing what's in the best interest of another person. He just blurted it out. And I looked at him and I was like, that's amazing. Like, where did that come from? Well, they attended a pretty high-end private Catholic school there in Tulsa. And he goes, oh, we heard that in our religion class today. (laughs) But I went away from that. And I took that definition and I contemplated it for a really, really long time. Because I think inside of it are the elements of what, when we start to get to a working definition of love that's practical, lives very much inside that definition. So now I personally operate with, and I give this by way of closing, an opportunity to consider a definition. So I operate in life with a definition of it at a deep concern for the well-being of the other. Do I know, want, and do what's in their best interest? Knowing in my mind what could help them, wanting in my heart, actually desiring that for them, and then acting upon that. And so that that is how I would how I would finish, you know, that maybe that's a, a place to start for a lot of a lot of leaders to consider that. People can find out about me through my website, Firelamp, firelampconsulting.com. I also have a mental health and wellness consum- uh, company called AIM Awareness, and that's uh, aimawareness.com. And I would love to hear from folks and help in any way I can. Well, I think you will. And just outstanding, your insights and remarks. I re- really appreciate it. Beck. Well, this was a, a really good conversation. It's one that will continue to spark other conversations. And I look forward to that. Um, I think just the interconnectedness of everybody, the inner subjectivity, the I and thou belief that we're so intrinsically connected. And if we can really believe that, your discussion, Ben, of multi-level consideration, it, it actually is much more unified. It doesn't have to be, this is good for me, or this is 
good for culture. It, it can really, if we're looking at it from an interconnectedness and intersubjectivity, we can see that we're part of the winning when we're part of the other person. Um, and I think that's something I, I want to consider to can, can continue to stew on, consider um, more and how that practically takes shape in my life and, and other people's lives. So thank you for prompting that. Yep. Oh, how about you? Thanks. And I was, I was thinking um, a good friend of mine is uh, Father Greg Boyle. He, he's a priest that runs a place called Homeboy Industries in LA Gang Intervention Center. And, and uh, he did my wife's uh, funeral a little bit a year and a half ago. And his remarks and his homily were really about love and kindness. And um, he said, you know, what if that we really believe that some people's lives weren't as worthy as others, you know? And he said, we got to get past that belief system. And that sense of approach that is kinship. We are connected and we do sort of belong to each other, you know, and uh, it was really quite powerful. And I'll never forget that. And I, I think through the conversations like both of you have have suggested and, and framed, I think so helpfully, uh, I think we begin to see a, a, a workplaces that aren't so uh, alienating and do give life and where people can thrive and grow and not feel alone so much. At least that's the hope, you know, and, and, uh, and especially on Valentine's day, which I had forgotten about as well. After I said that at the beginning. So, um, so to everyone, you know, love is, is the answer, I guess. And uh, especially today as we celebrate it, but Ben, thank you back as always. It's a real pleasure to work with you. Uh, you'll find this podcast in the living leadership website at Gonzaga university. Um, next month, we're going to be talking about networking and connecting and some strategies to do that. But um, this has been a real rich conversation. And thank you for listening. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks. Thanks.